This is the Commercial Property Show Australia. Show number six. Whether it's residential or commercial, the thing that has the biggest influence on property asset values is economic conditions at a local level. How's everyone doing today? Welcome to the Commercial Property Show. I'm your host, Andrew Bean. If you've bought a commercial property and you want to help others succeed by sharing your journey on our Everyday Investor on Fire segment, please get in contact with us through our Facebook page. And guys, don't forget that your feedback on the show really helps us get in front of more people so we can share the knowledge and years of experience of our guests. If you haven't already, can you please subscribe and give the show a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts. In today's show, Simon Presley from Propertyology stops by and opens up our eyes to accepting that we all have built-in confirmation bias and how it's actually affecting our financial freedom. As I try and lure him over to the commercial side, he drops his top picks for the next hotspots and how he filters out locations. Do not miss this segment. He really opens your eyes to the opportunities that exist outside of your hometown. Commercial agent Peter Vines gives us a look into the Western Sydney market and he helps us understand if Sydney is going to come back into play for investors. He also shares the type of assets currently in demand and details infrastructure projects that he says will be game changers for the Western Sydney market. When purchasing a commercial property, or any other property for that matter, the banks like to be in the driver's seat, controlling the valuation and the lending terms of the deal. Effectively, what that means is in the final weeks of the purchase, they can pull out at any time, leaving you high and dry without funding. Chris Lang explains an out-of-the-box way to take the power out of the bank's hands and put it back into yours. We also announce an exciting giveaway for one lucky CPS listener, so make sure you check that one out. James Dawson and I go back to basics and explain the relevant investing terms and acronyms that you need to know to begin your commercial journey. We also touch on some advanced metrics and formulas that even the most seasoned investors struggle with. James breaks it down and makes it easy to understand. Let's get to the show. Our next guest is the creator of the number one commercial property course and avid surfer, James Dawson. How are you, mate? Great. Thanks, Andrew. And I did have a lovely surf this morning, so I'm even better today. Fantastic, buddy. (laughs) Today, I wanted to talk about the basic terms and acronyms a novice investor needs to understand and how they're used in the commercial space. And then at the end, we'll talk about some more advanced ones. You ready to go? Yep, absolutely. Far away. All right. So cap rate. What's the cap rate? Cap rate, the real long word of, for that is capitalization rate. And it really is just the most popular way of measuring 
the rate of return that a property is going to give you. So put simply, let's say you buy a property for $1 million and your net rent, that that means the rent after all outgoings are taken out, is uh, say $100,000 a year. The cap rate of that property would be 10%. And also, of course, it means the yield is 10%. So often cap rate and yield are used uh, you know, interchangeably, I guess. But in real terms, how it's used in everyday life is if you're talking to a real estate agent and you're looking at a shop in a, in a street, you might say to him, look, what's the general cap rate of this area? And what that means is he would he would answer hopefully and say, well, look, look, James, uh, the recent sales uh, of properties down the street have sold at a cap rate of 7%, for example. So it's like a measure uh, so that you can compare properties with other properties. So very simple calculation, but you do have to calculate what the net income is. That's the most crucial part of using um, cap rate. Okay, great. We'll talk about net income in a few minutes. But the next one is DD or due diligence. Yes, due diligence. Say that quickly, you get tongue tied. Uh, (laughs) Due diligence, uh, of course, is one of the most important things in buying any property or doing any business deal, really. And it's simply... Uh, you know, applying diligence to uh, to a particular thing that you're buying. So due diligence is really going through a number of steps and a number of items and also generally relates to a period of time in, in a commercial contract. So, for example, most people would buy a commercial property and they might have, say, 21 days or, six, or 30 days or even 60 days due diligence period. And in that time, that's when they can really check out the property. Now, commercial property speaking, in when you're buying commercial property investment, that due diligence period is actually a time when you could pull out of the deal if you find something that's really wrong. So let's say you, you find, or you could renegotiate. So let's say you find, for example, during your due diligence period that the owner has, or the agent has, has given you a couple of numbers that are actually incorrect you might decide to either pull out of the deal or renegotiate the deal. So it's a very, very powerful thing. And that's essentially what it means. It means, you know, buyer beware, go through all the steps, check all the points about that property. The next one's fairly obvious, but it's kind of only used in commercial property is outgoings. Yes. So look, outgoings, it's extremely important. It's one of the most basic uh, things when you're looking at a a commercial property investment, because you're always trying, when you're first looking at a commercial property investment, you're trying to get to what the the real net rent is of that property. So all properties have outgoings like, you know, rates, management, insurance, there might be uh, strata fees if it's strata, Uh, there might be garbage fees, you know, fire alarm systems, all these little costs that come off the rent in some way. And I know we're going to talk about net and gross leads later. So all those outgoings are costs to run that property. And once you have uh, a good handle on the cost to run that property, you can therefore then work out what the net rent is. Yeah, that's right. And the selling agent conveniently leaves out a few of those outgoings a lot of the time, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. And look, just just a point here, I guess, with commercial property, uh, quite often you'll see that the agent will leave out the management fee, which is, say, roughly 5.5% of a commercial property as an outgoing. And sometimes when valuers are actually working out the numbers for a property, 
they leave it out also. But when you're doing your own cash flow, you need to include that obviously to see what your absolute bottom line is. So sometimes there's two calculations just to see what your actual cash flow may be. And it may vary from the calculation where you're trying to work out the net rent and the value of the property. Okay, so the next one is gross lease. Yes, yeah, so gross lease is essentially where the tenant, let's say the tenant is paying you $100,000 a year for your cafe, and out of that $100,000 a year, you are paying all the outgoings, which may amount to, say, $25,000 a year. So in that case, your net rent from that property would be $75,000 a year. So that's a gross lease. Now, there's two types of leases, and I guess we can move on to net lease, but gross leases are actually more common in regional areas for some reason. So the tenant just, the beauty for the tenant is that they're just paying their rent, set rental amount and they don't have to, uh, you know, pay one amount and then get a bill from the landlord, for example, for another amount, which is the outgoings on top. So I guess moving on to what a net lease is, in that same example, uh, a tenant could be paying a base rent of $75,000 And then when the landlord or the agent gets a bill for rates or insurance or whatever you've agreed to in the lease as an outgoing that they should pay, you then present the bill to the tenant and say, look, here's the bill for $5,000 for the rates. And they pay that back to you direct. Yes. So which one do you actually prefer, James, gross or net lease? Yeah, look, it is interesting. I use both in in my property. So some in the regional areas, a lot of people just prefer to know that they're paying, let's say, you know, $800 a week, and that's all inclusive of their outgoings. But for the landlord, generally speaking, a net lease is better because if you have, let's say you've got a five-year lease and just using that cafe example, it's a $75,000 initial base rent plus outgoings. Now, let's say during that five years, um, your outgoings increase a little bit, like the council rates go up by, say, 5% or something like that. With a gross lease, it's actually a little bit tricky and you know a bit more of a calculation to get that increase. But with a, with a net lease, every time the outgoings go up, that's what you present to the tenant. That's what they have to pay. So in effect, you're actually getting a, a slightly higher return for your property and therefore a slightly higher cash flow and slightly higher valuation as well. So most investors do prefer a net lease. So with a gross lease, James, because you are paying the outgoings yourself, if you can figure out a way to reduce the outgoings, that in turn would increase the value of the property, right? That's right. So, I mean, look, absolutely. So, for example, I'm, I'm always banging on to everyone about checking your insurance policies every year or so. And I recently had one insurance policy reduced from 15000 a year to 12000 a year. So in that property, which is a gross lease, obviously I'm getting $3,000 extra into my pocket. So in that sort of situation, yes, you can definitely get a saving. And actually to look after your tenant, if you had a net lease too, you'd, you know, if you're able to reduce that, of course, then it's passed on to them as well. But That's right. I mean, look, mostly with council rates and things like that, they're fairly predictable. They might go up by CPI or just a few percent each year. But there are often savings in maintenance, you know, insurance, sometimes even communal power, those sort of things if you, you know, change things around a bit. So, yeah, that's a good point. The next one's actually quite interesting and it's not very common, maybe usually with the big like national tenants, triple net lease. What's that? (laughs) 
Yeah, look, this, this I, I love this term because uh, triple net is actually, it's one of those sort of American terms that sort of snuck into um, Australian and actually in UK commercial property investing. It really just means a net lease, but it originally sort of started in America where there was three, you know, three major outgoings, which might have been, you know, the property taxes, which sort of lumped all the property taxes like rates, et cetera, in and maybe land tax if they've got land tax there. Then it might have been maintenance and then it was something else. So there was like these three major things that were outgoings. And if you had, they used to sometimes also call it like a golden lease. You know, this is a triple net lease. The tenant's paying absolutely every cost on top of their rent for this property. So it's it's one of those things that's snuck into agent terminology. And that's actually one other good point that often in Australia, you'll see agents advertising things and they'll use different terms for the same thing. You know, they'll, they'll say, for example, uh, oh, this property is yielding 10% or it's got a cap rate of 10%, same thing. Or this, they'll say it's got a net lease or they'll say it's got a triple net lease. Well, essentially the same thing. So. But if you're looking at a property and you're a bit confused by the ad, you've just got to ask the question of the agent and say, look, what's that mean? So the next one we've got is NLA. So NLA is net lettable area. And often with commercial properties, they're based on a per square metre rate per annum rental. So it might be, let's say, $200 per square metre of net lettable area. Now, that net lettable area, generally speaking, is the internal area of that office or shop. And then there may be a different calculation for a car park or something like that. But very important, actually, with uh, people's properties that if they buy a property, they want to make sure that the area quoted, let's say an agent says, look, this is 150 square metres, that it is actually 150 square metres because I've seen deals where people are charging rent on 150 square metres only to find out a year or two later that it's actually only 136. And then, of course, the tenant wants a reduction in their rent because they're paying per square metre. So, And a lot of measurements in the past were done by agents with tape measures, and they're wrong, you know. So you probably need to get a proper survey, but that's essentially what that means. Yeah, the net lettable area is quite interesting because, I mean, if you can increase that, then in turn you're increasing the value of your property. So it's actually quite a powerful one to know. Yeah, that's right, because, you know, essentially in that same example, uh, uh, well, with one of my properties in Bondi, we were always working, the agent was always working on 100 square metres and it was actually 110. So, you know, when it was re-measured, at the next market review, we said, well, look, we're working on 110 square metres, this is what it is, you know, so the rent was increased accordingly for that extra 10 square metres of space. So the next one is CPI. CPI means Consumer Price Index. And it is mostly used in in leases where they've built a clause in the lease, of course, to increase the rent every year or whatever period's nominated in the lease, generally every 12 months. And usually there's two ways of doing that. It's by CPI, which is the Consumer Price Index, which the government gives you every quarter. They might say, oh, look, the Consumer Price Index uh, number for this quarter is 1.8%. Then if you're due for a rent increase, you would apply that to the rent. So it's just a method that the government work out based on a formula that they've set to give an increase, uh, basically an inflation amount for the last quarter. And then it's worked out over the year to apply to that rental figure. And what's the other way to increase the rent on your lease? 
The most simple way is just to have a fixed percentage. And in the past, a lot of fixed percentage rent increases were, you know, anywhere from three to five percent or anywhere from, say, two to five percent fixed. But there's one problem with that, actually. If you've got a fixed increase every year of, say, five percent, let's say the CPI is running at two percent, you're obviously outstripping the market by three percent. So you could get to the situation where you get to a market review in your lease and find that your rent is actually quite a bit above market and you actually have to bring it back a little bit. Now, that sounds bad, but you've been actually enjoying the higher cash flow through that period. But I do think, you know, something closer to the CPI as a fixed increase is the easiest way to go. So if the average CPI for the last few years, which it sort of has been, you know, maybe a little bit under 2%, maybe a fixed increase of 3%, sometimes you also have clauses which say CPI plus 1% or something like that. So there's various ways to write that up. Yeah, it's interesting how they do it because, yeah, you could potentially outstrip the market rate and then you could be incentivizing your tenant not to pick up their option and find another location because the rent's so much cheaper. That's right. So the next one we've got on the list is gross income. Gross income is the total income from that property. So essentially, and that's before you take the outgoings out. So just going back to that same $100,000 a year cafe example, if that tenant was paying $100,000 a year and then you were paying the outgoings out of that of $25,000, you know, you would have to take that $25,000 off the gross income amount of $100,000 to work out the net income of $75,000. Gross income also refers to, it's the total income from that particular investment you hold. So it might be something you might get rent from the tenant of 100,000 a year for the cafe, but then you might have a little car park out the back that you're renting for you know 10,000 a year. So your gross income in that situation would be 110,000 a year. So it's adding up all those little income amounts. You might also have, for example, a, an ATM machine that's giving you, you and the tenant perhaps a little bit of extra income. So it's adding up all the separate income sources from that property. Yeah, that one can get you in a bit of trouble if you're doing your calculation off that one, can't it? It can, you know. um, You can never work out what you're going to pay from investment from the gross income. You've always got to come back to the net income, whether it's residential or commercial. I mean, you always want to know what the net income is. And I guess the other thing with that is, without going into too much depth with it, It's extremely important and one of the most basic things is to make sure that whatever rent that tenant is paying is, you know, the correct market rent because you're working out the whole deal based on the gross and then the net income. If the guy's paying too much above market, you could be paying too much for that property. So the next one is net income and the abbreviation for that one is NOI. That's right, which means net operating income. Now, that's another sort of American term that sort of snuck in, but, you know, like everything else, we're all uh, getting Americanized, hopefully not too much. Um, and, you know, look, people do use, it's just one of those terms, but I know most investors in Australia just use the term net income, but net operating income, it, the problem is with it, it confuses some people because it sounds more like a, a sort of business, but net operating income is simply, you know, the gross income and less the outgoings if, if you're on a gross lease or if it's a net lease and the tenant's just paying you a net amount of, say, 75000 a year, that is the net operating income that's coming from that property. Yep, that's right. And then my personal favourite, 
cash flow? How is that different to net income? Well, the cash flow is, so let's say you've got 75000 uh, a year net income and you've worked that out, you look at investment and that's absolutely accurate in your mind and you're buying that property, let's say it's a million dollar property and your interest rate for your loan, I mean, currently um, interest rates and commercial, you know, around three and a bit percent, let's say, let's say four percent to be safe. If you're paying interest only just for ease of calculation terms on that $1 million, I know you've got stamp duty, et cetera, your mortgage payments, interest only payments, maybe say $40,000 a year. So you take that $40,000 off the $75,000 and that gives you the balance, gives you the positive cash flow that you can bank and use for other things. So the next ones are a little bit more advanced and the one that I'm about to talk about, you will need to know this one when you're speaking to your mortgage broker because the bank will want to know this one and it's the whale. That's right. So whale means weighted average lease expiry date. So actually, this is as simple as it is and then it can get more confusing. So let's say you've got uh, a property that's just signed a fresh five-year lease the whale on that property would be five years. But let's say you've got a property that's got three or four tenants, let's say three tenants and one tenant's on five years, the other has five years to run on the lease, another tenant has three years to run on the lease, and another, year, another tenant has two years to run on the lease. You average those three numbers and that gives you the weighted average expiry of that property. Now, how that's used is that some banks will look at that and they'll say, oh, look, we, we want to whale over three, for example, or we want to whale over four. So if there's a multi-tenant property, they want that higher number. And essentially, if you're looking at an information memorandum that's supplied by an agent, often they would have worked that out, particularly if it's multi-tenant property, let's say 10 or 12 tenants, something like that. It can get a little bit tricky to work out, but that's essentially what it is. It's really, as you say, used when you're talking to your bank, etc. They might say, well, what's the whale of the property? Well, okay, that's what you need to find out and tell them. Yeah, so the higher the number, the better on that one. That's right, exactly. Although, <laughs> uh, just a point on that, sometimes in some investors will prefer a lower whale, and that could be in the situation where, you know, they say, well, look, I'm buying this property, but it's a bit under-rented, you know, like the, the rent's actually a little bit low. So, you know, for example, if you had a tenant in there on on a 10-year lease, so let's say a 10-year whale if it was a single tenant, but they're in there on a very low rental, that may not be a good thing for you as an investor. You might prefer if it was, if it was only in there for three years and then you could get them out and uh, increase the rent. Yeah, of course. And I guess that also plays into uh, the situation if you wanted to develop the property or further kind of split it or something. That's right, exactly. So, you know, quite often, I mean, I know most people do talk about going for properties with long leases, but quite often there's some advantage in buying some properties with shorter leases. The next one is COC or cash on cash return. Well, essentially cash on cash return is the return, let's say you've got a positive uh, cash flow property, and this is actually where, you know, with positive cash flow properties, like I suggest everyone buys with commercial, of course, it's essentially the return on the cash that you've put into that property. So, um, you know, let's say you've put $5,000 into a property to buy it. I know that's ridiculous. And your positive cash flow from that property after all costs was $3,000, you'd be getting a 60% cash on cash return in that, mm. in that example. So I know that some of my mates, when they're looking at stuff, they might say, look, I'm going to put a $100,000 into this deal. 
to get this deal uh, into my portfolio. And my positive cash flow is, you know, $35,000 from this property after all costs, the mortgage payments, etc. So in that situation, they'd be getting 35% cash on cash return. Beautiful. And the next one's a little bit more common, which is ROI. Which is return on investment. So essentially, it's another one of those terms, I guess, that, you know, people sometimes rattle off and you think, okay, it's really just like the yield, you know. Mm. So in that situation, if you were buying a million dollar property and you had net income of $100,000, your return on investment in that situation, yeah, it does get a little bit complex because you've got your loans and things like that that you have to sort of allow for. But, you know, your return on your investment effectively would be 10% on that property. And a lot of these numbers like cap rate and return on investment, when you're using them, you use them assuming that you don't have a loan on the property. Now, you do that because you want to be able to compare that with other properties and other deals. And then, of course, when you're working out your cash flow, obviously, then you need to take your loan into into account as well. So the difference in cash on cash and ROI, is it safe to say that on ROI, you take into account the debt and in cash on cash, you only take into account the money invested? Yeah, that's right. Cash on cash is really how much cash you're putting there and what the result is for you by putting that say 100 grand into that deal. So if you hadn't put the 100 grand in and hadn't done the deal, you know, obviously there's no return. But if you're putting that in and suddenly turn that into 35,000 positive cash flow, that's 35%, you know, cash on cash return. Then return on investment, it's sort of a little bit similar, but I think it's actually taking partly into account your mortgage payments, etc. And it's a bit like, I know we're going to get to internal rate of return, which is a very complex method of working out a return but anyway it's one of those things it's just another metric i guess used in property investment that does bring us to our next one which is actually quite confusing is irr yeah and i mean effectively it's the percentage of interest you earn on each dollar that you've invested in a property over the entire holding period so you can imagine it's quite it's quite a calculation now there's spreadsheets available for this so i think I know that some people, when they're looking at properties, they will want a particular internal rate of return. And I must admit, in my experience investing, no one I know actually uses that, generally speaking, in sort of everyday real life. It might be something that they'll end up getting that metric from somewhere, but you need to plug in a whole series of figures, how long you're going to hold that property, and then it gives you an internal rate of return number and i would say it's probably something that's used more by the large group and you know investors that are buying large office blocks and things like that that you know are saying well we don't buy anything that hasn't got an internal rate of return above seven or, or whatever metric they're using so it's one of those things that for real life i guess mums and dad style investors which i guess i am and most people i deal with are they would not generally use that measure Okay, so are there any other ones that would be notable, James, that I've left out here? Not really. I think that's actually has covered most of the things that people will hear. But in saying that, Andrew, that you know, as I mentioned before, people will write all sorts of well, agents and, and marketers will write all sorts of things in advertisements about properties. And sometimes you'll read them, you think, what on earth does that mean? It's just very important that people stick to the basics 
ask the questions of the agent or the owner, whoever's selling the property, and just come back to the basics. You want to get to what is the real rent for that property and the real net return. So you want to make sure that the, the rent for that property is correct for the area and the style of property it is, and check all the outgoings, make sure they're all covered so that you can get to the net rent and then find out what the cap rate or what other recent sales have sold at the cap rate that they've sold at that area and then you can start really working on that deal. Okay great I think that's been a great start for getting to know the basics and in the next episode we're going to talk about how we're going to use these terms to actually value the property. Excellent fantastic. All right James so where can the listeners go to find out more about you? So if they go to jamesdawsonproperty.com.au got all sorts of posts up there and links also as well to my webinar so check that out and james has kindly set up an affiliate link for the commercial property show listeners if you would like to go straight to the webinar the link is www.jamesdawsoncommercial.com.au forward slash cps or you can click on the link in the show notes james dawson has been my guest today thanks james great thanks andrew great to be with you chat soon My next guest is a commercial agent and the managing director of his own Western Sydney franchise, Peter Vines. How are you, mate? Yeah, well, thank you, Andrew. Excellent, buddy. Peter, today's market review is Western Sydney. Can you just tell us exactly what suburbs you cover? We basically cover sort of anything west of the Anzac Bridge, back out through Penrith to the Blue Mountains, and then back down to Campbelltown. Okay, great. Excellent, mate. And what are you seeing in those marketplaces right now? Look, it's obviously, it's a massive geographical area. And so there's lots of various markets. I think that generally across the market at the moment, there is certainly some, I think, uncertainty from investors and developers. Given the current situation, people sort of just, the market has been very strong and all the fundamentals are there to support a strong growth in the market but people just don't quite know how to price things at the moment and so i think that you know the people who are out there looking for for value or they need to be looking to buy something for an alternate use for them to occupy or for them to develop in sort of you know 12 18 months time but not in today's market so fundamentals again you know everybody wants to be in western sydney or a lot of people want to be in western sydney but everybody's just being somewhat cautious at the moment. Have you seen the level of inquiries drop off dramatically? I think the stock that we've had on has been stock which has really been sort of pretty sought after. And yes, I think there will have been a reduction in inquiry on some on some asset classes, but the quality of the inquiry that we're getting is, is very strong. We have a block of units that we're currently selling in, in Westmead, it's a block of five units, two twos and three threes. And the fundamentals of it are just very good. It's close to the hospital. It's onto the park. And we would have had sort of close to, I reckon, 90, 95 inquiries on that in, in sort of two and a half weeks, which is exceptionally strong. We sold a block of units in Ride the other day, a block of nine, uh, six, six twos and three ones all in original sort of 1960s condition and we had 15 registered bidders 
for that auction. We were selling something at Breakfast Point for Seabus and Rose Corp, which was a heritage property on the water there. We received nine expressions of interest for that. But yeah, I mean, certainly I think that, you know, if you were to put on commercial or retail at the moment, I think you'd still, you're getting a lot of people who are looking for opportunity. So, but I think certainly there's a lot of people out there just being very cautious. From the inquiries that you are getting, what sector is the asset in that they're actually inquiring on? Um, Well, residential development is one where I think that, you know, for the last 24 months sort of has been relatively dead. I mean, you could name, you could sort of count the number of large transactions on, on two hands. I think that everybody who's kind of in that space is looking sort of 12 to 18 months out. Um, and so we are seeing, you know, groups who are who haven't been active coming back, starting to, to look for stock. They're not going to pay the prices that were at the peak of the market, but they're certainly out there looking to buy. Blocks of units is something where, you know, there's no construction risk. They're fairly passive. You know, if there's renovation to do and people can increase the returns on them, then they're very happy to look at that. Commercial office buildings, I think, within Parramatta or other primary markets will still be sought after. It's more that sort of, I guess, retail where people aren't trading at the moment or some of those larger assets where, again, people just aren't comfortable with with necessarily what's going to happen in the market. And so they are just holding on just to see sort of what, what unravels and where we end up sort of in the next two to three months. Okay. So the blocks of units that you've said you had in stock at the moment or you just sold, are you valuing them with a cap rate? There's a couple of methods that we will look at them on. Um, one is a sort of direct comparison. So what would they be worth individually and what a developer would need to or a strata dealer would need to to strata and sell them down and also on a, on a kind of, yes, a yield basis. And the yield will, will typically range anywhere from sort of 4 to 5%. Okay, so that's reasonably low. What kind of cap rate are you seeing across all the other sectors? So industrial is a market which is still extremely strong. I think that commercial property, it really comes down to who your tenants are, the viability of them, what sort of industry they're in. And I think that, you know, industrial, you sort of, you're still going to be looking at trading sort of around that 5%, sometimes sub 5%, dependent on the quality of the of the tenant. Commercial, you're probably in Western Sydney going to be somewhere sort of five, five and a half percent and retail. Retail yields came down quite substantially and would have been sort of five, six percent on smaller standalone free freestanding retail shops. They would have been less than that. You know, we were transacting stuff at sort of anywhere from two to five percent. But I think that those days are probably gone for the moment. People aren't out there spending money and shops aren't trading. It's very difficult for people to to pay those sorts of yields and pay those sorts of rents. Oh, definitely. And do you see those cap rates pushing out in the future? I th- look, I think that good assets will be good assets. And I think that properties which were always a bit secondary, but people thought they had no risk, will start to potentially go back up. There was no sort of differentiation previously. Well, there hasn't been because of the, I guess, the weight of capital looking to invest. There hasn't been that sort of disparity between good assets and and sort of 
assets that aren't as good. People have just bought them because they wanted a yield. So I think that the quality stock is likely to stay at similar levels, may sort of continue to compress a little bit, but the sort of secondary type properties are likely to go back up a bit. Are you seeing much stock on hand for industrial, commercial office and retail right now? No, there's very little. I mean, people haven't wanted to trade for the last sort of 12, 18 months because interest rates have been so low. And so people struggle to replace the asset. And at this point, I think only sort of fairly motivated vendors would be bringing assets to market, which is obviously, you know, a good thing for the market being able to meet the market. But I think that if there's any sort of distress which comes out of all of this, then my guess is that there could be more stock which comes on the market. I mean, it's difficult to hold an asset where you're paying interest uh, and you have a tenant who's not paying rent or who's struggling to pay rent and because you're wanting to work with that tenant, but you still have repayments to make as well. So depending on how heavily leveraged you are, things might be getting sort of a bit tough. And, you know, if you're sitting on land where you haven't necessarily got a, a development approval and you're unlikely to be able to get the site out of the ground in the next sort of 12 months, there's a bunch of high interest rates from alternate lenders, puts real pressure on people. And so I guess our feeling is, is that perhaps in the next sort of six months or so that there is likely to be more stock. I think it's a bit like the yields though. It's sort of good stock will always be good stock. I think it's more likely to be this kind of secondary assets which have hairs on them, which which come up. Is good stock still good stock if it's vacant and has no lease? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Depends where. It's more challenging. Your investment and your value is tied to having a tenant who can trade. So if you don't have a tenant in there who can trade, your price then is unlikely to be as good. What type of tenants are entering the market at the moment? Very few. Very few. I mean, our inquiry levels have dropped off about 80% in terms of our commercial leasing and retail leasing inquiry. There's a couple of medical groups around who are looking. There's people who are looking at kind of downsizing out of larger space, which we think potentially could be a trend. There's a lot of people working from home at the moment. And I think for a lot of companies, that's working working pretty well and they're finding new ways of doing things. And the question is going to be, do they need as much space into the future or could they have less space and then have people rotating through the office? But certainly inquiry levels are down. I think potentially your logistic type tenants where there's been heavy demand on certain products will be looking for overflow space at the moment. Okay, so is it fair to say the people that are looking to reduce their space, they're in the office sector and the people that are potentially looking to expand their space are more of an industrial kind of manufacturing business. Is that fair to say that? Probably not manufacturing. It's more, I think, warehousing. I mean, your internet distribution, your food, your food type users, electronic users seem to be trading very well at the moment. A lot of those online businesses are still doing very well. Fashion is is obviously a tricky one. Manufacturing is sort of, is more limited. But I think that with office, people are likely to, again, just sit on their hands at the moment. It's really difficult for people to make a decision around anything, I would think, because we don't know what's happening in the economy. We don't, there's going to be stimulus put in by the government, but I guess going and making business decisions, unless you're in a fast growth industry, 
is very tricky. Yeah, it's uh, one of those common things when there's disruption, people just seem to do nothing, which is not good for investors like me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it's problematic when people sit on their hands, but I think that there's always people who have to do something. They're the people yeah. who you need to be trying to work with. Yeah, that's right. So what buying opportunities are you seeing in the market right now? I think it's a bit early. I guess it depends what you're looking for. Most people ask me, you know, is now a good time to to find a deal? And I think that it really is too early. I mean, the market up until sort of a month and a half ago was absolutely booming in the investment market. You could not buy anything. And so there's still all that money out there potentially looking to buy stuff. But now they feel that there's potentially likely to be some distress which comes into the market, which who knows what will happen. But the reality is, is that you can't just stop huge parts of, of a country or of a world's <laughs> workforce and, you know, have people out of work and have shops not trading and businesses not doing business and not have some sort of on-flow effects and on-flow effects directly into the property market, be it tenants not being able to pay rent or owners not being able to pay their mortgage. Or My feeling is, is that there has to be some movement at some time. Having said that, A, I could be wrong, but also B, sometimes the opportunities at the very moment where it's a situation type opportunity and you just need to be constantly out there looking at what is out there and kissing a lot of frogs before you get to the princess. Um, and that's just deal flow you know that's looking through a lot of assets to find motivation and then find the properties that suit you so are there any selling opportunities out there right now look i think again coming back blocks of units seem to be very good i think commercial office buildings that that have good leases will still be highly sought after i think the retail sector isn't likely to be moving anywhere in any time in a hurry and I think industrial, again, is going to be very, very strong. So I think all the sectors, there's still very strong demand. The amount of infrastructure being poured into Western Sydney is unbelievable. And so I think that those areas where there is money being spent and there's good fundamentals, there's still a lot of buyers out there with a lot of money. And if you need to sell, you will still get a good price. Will it be the, the peak of the market? Probably not. But will you have other opportunities in six months or something? Potentially you will. And so maybe you can reuse your capital somewhere else. You mentioned there's quite a lot of infrastructure projects going on in Western Sydney right now. Can you list a couple of those at the moment? Badgerys Creek's obviously a big one. Yep. The the Aerotropolis. Um, that that's causing, you know, a lot of a lot of interest around there. There's major road upgrades. There's a light rail coming through Westmead into Parramatta. There's a proposed metro coming into Western Sydney. There's the M12 motorway. There's there's constantly, I mean, West Connects. I don't know whether you've been on that, but that is an absolute game changer. I live in the eastern suburbs and it's taken at least 15 minutes each way off my trip without having to go along Parramatta Road. Wow. And I think that then opens up opportunities to revitalise sort of along Parramatta Road and a whole lot of things. But, yeah, there's a lot happening. Yeah, if you're not from Sydney and you've never driven down Parramatta Road, it's an absolute nightmare. Yeah, and you still get the, the big trucks that go along there and it's pretty narrow. And so 
you know, he's sort of trying to manoeuvre between the medium strip and the, the semi-trailers that are either side of you. It can be a bit, bit tricky. Are there any major office developments happening in Western Sydney at the moment that are notable? Heaps and heaps. I'm actually looking out the window from my office in Parramatta at Walker Corporation's projects at Parramatta Square. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's close to 200,000 square metres in total of space there. GPT are building here at the moment. Charter Hall have a number of large office buildings being built in Parramatta and in Westmead. GPT just purchased a site at 85, around 85 George Street in Parramatta, which will be sort of close to 25,000 square metres, I think. There's major developments proposed in Liverpool CBD. There's so much happening out here. There's cranes everywhere. Where can the listeners go to find out more about your services? You can Google me. You can find me on Instagram and you can follow me on Facebook. Fantastic. And you can also find Peter on LinkedIn. Correct. Thank you to Peter Vines for today's market review. Thanks very much, Andrew. At Developer Life, we are always searching for property with development potential. If it's time to sell and you own a commercial or residential property anywhere in Australia that you think has development potential, we want to know about it. We might be able to pay above market prices. You can contact us through our website at www.developalife.com.au or call us on 0410-694-633. Now back to the show. Regular guest, seven-time author and mentor Chris Lang is back again today. How are you, Chris? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Are you well? I'm well, mate. How's the marketplace looking at your end? Yeah, it's interesting. I've got two or three of my mentor group that recognise this is a good time to buy. I think we might have discussed it before. What we've got is we've got a medical crisis with financial implications as opposed to a complete collapse of the financial system, which we had with the global finance in 2008. In situations like this, Demand for commercial property doesn't disappear. It just simply gets deferred. Mm. It is a good time to buy, provided you get a a good property with a a decent lease and hopefully a tenant that's not dramatically affected by the pandemic. I mean, there are a lot of tenants out there that are making a hell of a lot of money, more than they were when things were normal. So it's not all all bad news. (laughs) That's good to hear. (laughs) So, Chris, one of the most nerve-wracking times of purchasing a property is the period of time between when the due diligence ends and the time when the bank is actually supposed to stump up for the funds to actually complete the purchase. I've heard of a few close calls and even a few deals that have ended in disaster because in the final weeks before the property was supposed to settle, the banks have turned around and pretty much said, no, sorry, we can't lend on that asset. You have a smart way to mitigate the risk, don't you? Can you share that with us today? Certainly. For those of your listeners that have already gained a copy of the keynote address I gave, which outlined my nine-step investment formula, there are two steps, I think it's three and six, which involve setting up the correct path to organise your finance. And it starts initially with the relationship I've built up with a firm of valuers where we find out in advance 
a figure up to which they're prepared to support. You see, most people want to try and buy property subject to finance, so they feel that they've then got all their ducks in a row. But the reality is you need to buy it subject to a figure that a valuer will support. So if you know that going into the deal, it, it enables you to sleep at night. Mm-hmm. Now, the quid pro quo for the value of providing my clients with that advice in advance is that as soon as they purchase the property and it goes unconditional, I then have them instruct the valuer directly. Now, you might say, well, that's a bit strange. That's not what normally happens. You're absolutely right. What most people do is go cap in hand to the bank and generally they claim a long-standing relationship with with the bank and feel that they're going to be looked after. But the bank are in the business of lending money and making a profit. Now, the problem you've got is, and you outlined it, is that they are in full control because you go to them, they organise the valuation, they own the valuation, this is traditionally speaking, and they come at the last few weeks and refuse to do the deal. They may not. They may come back to you and say, well, look, yeah, we'll do it, but our credit committee is a bit nervous at the moment with the pandemic and what have you. We need to have a, a lean over your home or over your business or something like that just to improve their security. Now, what I do is... I have my clients instruct the valuer so that the valuation is in their name. Now, it's for mortgage purposes, but it's in their name. You get a soft copy of the valuation, not a hard copy. Now, what you then do is give that to your broker who can then circulate it to two or three, maybe four different sources and invite them to submit a proposal. Now, the banks don't like it because they don't actually have control. You see, until you actually choose which of the proposals you prefer, you're not going to instruct the valuer to assign the valuation across to that lending authority. So, and it's it's two factors. One, you get the financial terms you're happy with, was the rate and the length of the term and the amount of money you borrow, but you also want to finalise the contractual terms so that the document is in a form you want. Now, you see, the unspoken message is when the broker sends that out, the the soft copy of the valuation, don't think you can muck us around because until we get the deal we want, you won't even be on the shortlist. So you actually control it right up until the end. So there are no surprises either in the rate or the term and no surprises in the legal documentation. So it's only at the last minute, and when I say the last minute, it might be the last fortnight, that you have the valuer redirect the valuation to the, your chosen lending source. So I've spoken to a few valuers about conducting an independent valuation, and there's always a few objections saying that the bank has to instruct them. Do you have any quick tips or any way to get around that? Well, that's not strictly true. The relationship I build up with this valuer is with one who is on if not all, 98% of all lending valuation panels. And the reason the valuer is prepared to provide this advice to me as a favour up front is because normally on these bank valuation panels, there are seven or eight different valuers. So 
the bank rotates it around. So they've got a one in seven, one in eight chance of getting it. This way, they have a 100% chance of getting it. This valuer's name is on the valuation. As I said, 98% of lenders will recognise them and have them on their panel already. Right. So it's the tip there is it's the relationship you have with that valuer because I didn't have any prior relationship to the valuers that I've spoken to. So I've asked them about this and they basically said, sorry, mate, I'm not going to give you that favour. Well, no, because there's a, a professional indemnity insurance risk, you know, because if they give it to someone who they don't know, I mean, I've been working with these guys for, I don't know, 15, 18 years. So there's a, a level of trust and, and they realise that probably eight out of 10 times I go to them and they give the advice, they will end up with the valuation. So they reckon those odds are pretty good. So, yes. And they know that I'm not going to abuse the advice that they provide me with. I'm not going to put them at, at risk. They know I advise my clients that it's a favour, it's not a valuation, but it's we've never had a situation where having bought the property that they haven't honoured what they've told me. In most cases, I use it as an upper limit and try and get it for a bit less. So, of course, the value is happy because they didn't have to go to the full extent of their limit. So it's a matter of trust. And as an individual, if you are buying a lot of property, you can yourself build up that sort of relationship. But it's probably not until you've done your fourth or fifth deal that, you know, a value recognises you as a, a good source of business and will cut you some favour. Okay, so are you actually purchasing this like an independent valuation or is it just no, that's uh, it. you will support? Well, it's an indication they give me on behalf of my clients who at that point they don't know. They are telling me that based on the information provided by the agent and look, a valuer operating in a, a capital city will know, a competent valuer will know most of the properties around and what's going on in and around the specific property we're talking about. So the information memorandum will provide all the core details that the value will will need. And with his knowledge and database, he can very quickly give you a, if not a range, certainly an upper limit to what they would be prepared to support. So that's all I need. I, I mean, it's no good me and my client doing what we think is a great deal if you then go to seek your finance and find out that the value is 5% under what you ended up paying. And that's, that's the problem you alluded to at the beginning. Okay. So let me just understand, how do you actually own, like how do you control the valuation if you don't actually own it? Oh, well, well no, wait on. there's two things. One is the pre-purchase advice. And the second one is where you instruct the valuer after you've purchased it. I mean, you need a valuation one way or the other. You're going to pay for it. I mean, either you pay the bank who then pays the valuer or you engage the valuer. What I'm trying to do is take the bank out of the equation so you control the valuation right up until the point that you're absolutely satisfied with the deal you're getting and only then do you have them reassign it across to the lending authority. Okay, so let me just make sure I understand this correctly. So before you purchase, before you've signed anything, you speak to your contact, the valuer, that you have a relationship saying, would you support this figure? And then once you actually sign the contract of sale, then you engage them as the actual independent valuation. Correct. Okay, yeah. 
so you, you do uh, yeah so you do own the valuation but you're just doing yeah. it after you've already got confirmation that they will support it great yeah and, and it's the fact that the relationship i built up that there is no charge for the pre-purchase advice yeah okay if you went to a valuer they would probably say to you yeah we're happy to do it but we're going to charge you half of a valuation fee and if you come back we'll then charge you the other half if we do the valuation for you but as i said because of the relationship i built up they're happy to provide that pre-purchase advice yeah that's good isn't it and how much would a valuation usually be if you're purchasing it yourself you mean after you signed the contract after you signed the contract like what kind of range would you expect well, to... as, as a rule of thumb you work at a dollar per thousand dollars of the value of the property so it's not a lot i'd say like for a four million dollar property it'd be four thousand dollars can you claim that back on your tax no that would be part of your acquisition cost which gets indexed and deducted from your capital gain and how do you find out what panel the value is on well you would probably go to your finance broker and they should tell you. I mean, as I said, where we are in Melbourne, there's probably about four or five valuers that I could say would be on the main lending panels. Generally, if you've got a lesser lender, I mean, see, sometimes, and this is where you're using a broker's handy, because you and I don't know where the best deals are. And it may be that there is some, I mean, recently there's a, a group called Judo Finance that have come on the scene. Now, they're pretty active and pretty aggressive and wanting to build up their loan book. So at the moment, they're offering a pretty attractive deal. But there may be some obscure group that, I mean, I remember a few years ago, there was a group that their main activity was providing funds for when you lease cars, doing those sort of deals. They had a, a residential portfolio and they needed to balance their commercial portfolio only for, for a month. They had a special deal with a half a percent less than the market. So I said, you and I wouldn't know that, but the broker does. So the broker would contact them or would have been contacted by them to say this special deal's on. So the broker would then ring and say, listen, who's on your panel? Or if you're working with the one I run with, is such and such on your panel? And they'd say, yeah, we're happy with them. Or they're not on our panel, but yeah, we know them. We're happy with evaluation from them. So your broker would sort that out early on. I'm not sure why you would want to be trying to find your own lending it's a scary thing to try and figure out as you said you just don't get those deals you you walk into the front door of the bank and you get the run of the meal deal you don't get those uh, discounted special offers that can make a good deal a great deal yeah but, but i mean most people i mean it's like when you, you go to a doctor or a, you've got an accountant they've got to do something really wrong before you change you know, because, I mean, changing doctors is a nightmare, you know, and the same with an accountant. The same with a bank. If you had your home loan with the bank and you've dealt with someone all the time, where's your first port of call? You don't know any other. So unless you get advice and, you know, that's part of this nine-step formula. A lot of my clients, uh, I say this affectionately, they're little sponges. They, they just want to learn as much as they can. But the interesting thing is the more they learn, the more they realise it's not straightforward. It's not difficult but it's out of their comfort zone. But it's important that they understand the steps so that when I talk to them, it's not a matter of, well, Chris, we'll do whatever you say. That's not how it works. You've got to understand what we're doing on each step. You mightn't have to feel you confident enough to go out and do it by yourself, but you have to be able to have a discussion, a useful and meaningful discussion on each step of the process on the way through. And every time you do it, 
you gain more confidence. That's right. Chris, we have a very special offer to announce today. Uh, we do, yes. We're going to make available the very last copy of your book, How Commercial Property Really Works, and we're going to make it available as a free giveaway for one lucky listener with the nine-step formula. And if you would like to be in the running for this lucky draw, all you need to do is click on the link in the show notes and purchase the Keynote Address 9-Step Formula for just $1. And make sure you use the coupon code 66OFF. And the prize is going to be drawn on the 26th of May. And don't worry, if you've already purchased the 9-Step Formula, you're instantly in the running. And I'm going to announce the winner on the Commercial Property Show Facebook page. So that's pretty exciting, isn't it, Chris? Yeah, it is. It is. This is the um, uh, actually second edition of that book. So, and it's uh, I'm looking I've got it in my hands right now. It's the only one I've got left. Other than that, it's available as a PDF version on the website. But this is the hard copy, the only one. Beautiful. All right, Chris. Well, thanks for being on the show today. That's a pleasure. Thank you. Our next guest is property analyst, award-winning buyer's agent, and the first man to pick Hobart as the next best thing. It's Mr. Simon Presley. How are you, mate? Good, Roy. Good, Andrew. Thanks for having us on. How's Hobart performing now? Still going? Um, look, it was happening before this coronavirus stuff started. It was sort of uh, appeared to have started a second win. It was sort of um, that last quarter running at double-digit price growth, but this virus has sort of put the brakes on everything for uh, for a few months, I think. But the fundamentals are still pretty solid there. Have you noticed a reduction in the residential market or is that just media kind of routing media stuff? Lots of speculations. In some ways, I think some of the people writing that stuff, it's because that's what they want to happen. But no, look, it's really, if you think about it, it's been about six weeks since this germ, as I refer mm-hmm. to it, hit the Australian shores and changed our lives. But, but, you know, six weeks in the overall scheme of things isn't a lot. What a lot of people, I think, don't understand, Andrew, is there was already a big reduction in properties listed for sale before the virus hit our shores, and there's even less now. So we think there's going to be a strong and quite rapid bounce back. So maybe like a little mini kind of boom. Could be. You know, let's not forget, we've still got those record low interest rates. You know, there's incentives for first home buyers uh, to enter the market. There's, you know, rental yields, say, circa 5%, where you can buy a mortgage at a bit above 3 so, you know, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that there's still some really, really good conditions. It's just all a matter of uh, how quickly can we become mobile again. And I think we're going to see um, a bit of a seagulls fighting over a chip scenario in parts of Australia. <laughs> I love that analogy. Now, mate, I've been following your work for a, a long time, and it never ceases to amaze me the amount of effort and detail you go to in your research. Can you just give us a bit of an explanation of the lengths you go to compiling your data and how you sort through it? Oh, look, it's an obsession. I'll, I will admit that, Andrew. I'd like to think it's a healthy one. There's plenty of worse things to be addicted to. But no, look, literally all day, every day, my head is in not just data, but all sorts of reports and commentary that one way or another can have an influence on a property market all over Australia. And we've sort of learned over the years that the best way for propertyology to, to get our name out there is to be prepared to... I guess, release some of that valuable intellectual property to enable members of the public to, to form their own views as to whether we've got our finger on the pulse or not. Yeah, that's right. I'm actually obsessed with commercial property and development myself, man, and that's definitely a healthy thing, so don't feel bad about that. It is. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, Simon does usually report on residential markets, but I'm actively trying to lure him to the commercial side. What do you think my chances are, mate? I'm an advocate of people being proactive and investing in their future. And there's all sorts of you know, asset classes that we can make money in, including commercial property. I think what's important is for each individual investor is to either formally study in the asset class before putting money into it or partner up with someone who does that study on a day-in, day-out basis. Now, whether that's commercial property, residential property, share markets, you can make money in all asset classes. Yeah, that's right. And you are a big believer of positive cash flow, aren't you? I um, believe that the cash flow is, a, is an important part of the equation. I guess a typical property that, that propertyology would help someone invest in is what I call the meat and potatoes residential property and its gross rental yield usually around that 5% mark in a climate where, as I said earlier, the interest rates are sort of, you know, very low threes and possibly heading into the twos. It makes it sort of cash flow positive in most cases. So With the growth kind of idea behind it as well. Well, the growth, I think, is what the investor should be chasing, but no one can tell us, you know, where it is and, you know, how long it's going to take and how much you're going to get. That's the, the value, and that is the best quality information, the research we do to pick markets. But, yeah, we, we want the growth because ultimately that's what's going to have the biggest influence on uh, when we can retire and what sort of lifestyle that will provide. But the cash flow is important because that's what I call the head on the pillow test and enables us to, to go to sleep each night without sort of worrying about things. And you wrote an article the other day about confirmation bias, and I was hoping that you could further explain how it works and how it is relevant to investing. Yeah, confirmation bias. So those who study uh, human behavior for a living will say, it, well, there's all sorts of biases uh, in the world, but confirmation bias is where one consciously or, or subconsciously, one is on a mission to find information when they're doing you know, research, I guess, to support what they really want to be true. And so they're closing down other possibilities that don't support what they want to confirm and on a mission to find the stuff that supports what they feel comfortable in, in believing. And unfortunately, almost all property investors do it all the time. Whether they'll admit it or not is different, but they do it all the time. Because we can see and touch something, Andrew, I guess that opens up all these emotions. But if you have a think about it, just about all of the 2.2 million property investors in Australia have bought an investment property, commercial or residential, in their home city. That, that, that is a confirmation bias, like is the fact that they you know, almost refuse to consider anywhere else in Australia other than their home city. Of course, who doesn't want their home city to perform well? But wanting it to perform well, you can't barrack it up. Like It's, it's going to do what it's going to do, isn't it? <laughs> So do you think confirmation bias plays a role in factoring in risk and obviously you just said location, but also the type of investment choices, whether it's not to go for residential or go for a commercial, which is more of a cash flow play? Uh, look, it absolutely does. There's what I call real risk, which is something that we can point our finger to and say, here's a bunch of evidence or here's some factual information that therefore makes it more risky than something else. That's real risk. Perceived risk is often is just a lack of knowledge and a perception that someone has about something being risky, but it often isn't true. It's just, as I said, a, a lack of knowledge. You know, probably one of the most common perceived risks in residential or commercial real estate is that capital city is safer or performs better than non-capital city. Excuse the French, but it's complete and utter horseshit. Um, but but because roughly 65% of Australia's population live in a capital city, and many of those have only lived in that one city all their life, they have this perception of other parts of Australia 
the perception based on what often not supported by anything now there are parts of non-capital city australia that definitely are higher risk than capital city but a lot of them actually are a lot less volatile than our capital city markets and there's evidence and proof to support that but one needs to be open to objectively look at at that in the first place to, to really appreciate that yeah and you've actually proved that in your research time and time again haven't you yeah to give an example there are in addition to our eight capital cities in australia there are a total of 185 individual towns and cities that have a population of 10,000 people or more. Now, how many people do you know, Andrew, who each and every time they're ready to invest in residential or commercial property have an objective look at every one of those 185 individual towns and cities? How many people would you know? Probably yeah, there, zero. There wouldn't be that many. <laughs> that, that's a confirmation bias, just refusing to look at things and making your mind up before we explore. But yet of those 185, 111 of those, the median house price has tripled over the last 20 years. Yeah, wow. So more than 100 non-capital city locations in Australia, the median house price has tripled in 20 years. That, that is spectacular growth. And most of those would actually have a better yield or better cash flow than the capital city locations. So not only, that, not only do they grow really well, the cash flow side of things is also superior. And a lot of them are actually less volatile than capital city Australia. For example, uh, Lismore in New South Wales, Esperance in WA and Dubbo in New South Wales also, they've had price growth in 17 out of the last 20 years. Perth wow. in capital city has had six years of decline and Sydney has had five years of decline. It's quite interesting just with the, the risk and the stigma around commercial property because risk really is, it's personal to you and your knowledge of that asset. And it just, it baffles me how everyone just thinks that commercial property, oh, that's risky. Yeah, it might be to you if you never study it, but for someone that's professional investor, it's really not that risky. And especially moving out of the capital markets where you have a higher yield, where the cash flow actually covers the property, you can mitigate risk around that. Yeah, and it's a great example of perception versus reality and, and lack of knowledge, isn't it? It's a bit like someone sort of saying a, a regional location is more risky, but if you actually continue that discussion with someone, their definition of region might be a one-industry coal town or something like mm. that. Well, that is risky, isn't it? Then not just capital cities, but, you know, broadly that's, that's, a, but there's also lots of opportunities in that. Um, but a sophisticated investor, you know, needs to really understand the risks with that and, and do their best to mitigate it and be comfortable with it. And the same with commercial property. Someone might have a perception that it's more risky because they might've heard a story about someone invested in investment uh, in commercial property once and, um, and it wasn't a good experience. Well, you could say the same about somebody who bought a house in Sydney. Um, it's really digging down and being prepared to have an open mind and and understand the risks as well as the opportunities. So have you put together any data about confirmation bias? Yeah, well, so, I mean, it's not like we can can Google confirmation bias and it produces these statistics, but here's some property statistics that I think indirectly confirm what we're saying. So according to the ATO, 92% of those who invest in property own only the one or two investment properties, which is nowhere near enough to really retire comfortably on. And almost all of those properties are in the same town or city that the investor themselves lives in. So that's a confirmation bias. 
here's some other statistics, I guess, to show the reality of, of Australia, but yet a lot of people wouldn't know these facts because they really just hone in on what suits them, and that's buying a property in their, in their hometown. So throughout Australia, our most expensive city in terms of highest median house price is Byron, but yet it's our 173rd biggest uh, location in terms of population sizes. So there's 172 individual towns and cities throughout Australia that have a bigger population than Byron, but yet it's our most expensive um, median house price. And Brisbane is obviously Australia's third biggest city, but it's our 22nd most expensive. The best-performed capital city property market over the last 20 years is guess where? I, th- I think it's maybe Hobart, is it? It is, yep, in the last 20 years. So <laughs> I, mean, I think everyone would know that it's been Australia's best-performed market over the last five years by country mile, but it's actually the best over the last 20 years. So there is a real-life example of profile versus reality. Hobart doesn't yeah. have as big a profile as the other capital cities, but it's actually clearly been the best performer over the last uh, two decades. Now let's compare Alice Springs in the red centre of Australia to Gold Coast on the beautiful beaches. Their median house price has increased by, was had the same capital growth rate over the last 20 years, exactly the same over 20 years. One's in the centre of the country and one's on the beach. One has lost population over those last 20 years and one has gained 300,000 population over the well, last 20 years. The perception versus reality. But who would have actually considered buying a property in Alice Springs 20 years ago? Probably no one other than those who lived there. Mm, um, that's right. A lot of people, a lot of Australians could not point to Wangaratta on the map, but yet Wangaratta's median house price over the last 20 years has increased at a greater rate than a Sydney apartment over that 20 years. Wow. Perception versus reality. Darwin, that's been in the media quite a bit for, for the wrong reasons over the last sort of three or four years, but it had a period 2002 to 2012. So in those 11 years, Darwin's median house price had double-digit growth in nine out of 11 years. If you bought a basic meat and potatoes house in Darwin in 2002, and still owned 11 years later. You would have made more money in that asset than any other dwelling you could have bought in Australia over that period of time. It's 11 years. Wow. And uh, this time, three years ago, Sydney and Melbourne were at, at the very end of their boom. We didn't know it at the time, but they were at the very end of their boom this time, three years ago. And everyone on the planet was saying Brisbane was going to be the place that booms next. Brisbane grew by 6%. The best-performed markets in Australia over that three-year period Hobart by 31, Orange, Ballarat, Launceston, Geelong, Burnie, Mildura, Cessnock and Colac were among Australia's best performed markets. But yet, how many people actually took the time to study their fundamentals? Not many. Yeah, not many. So, mate, how do we overcome confirmation bias? Let's do more research. I think the first thing, Andrew, is is admit that you've got it. Everyone has a confirmation bias. We all have things we want to happen. It's a bit like we want our footy team to win on the weekend. But the thing is, is when we're investing in something as expensive as a, a commercial or residential property, barracking is not going to have any influence over it all. So admit you've got it and ask yourself, how would I feel if I make a decision based on what I want to happen, but 10 years later... I discover it's performed nowhere near as well as large parts of other parts of Australia. So admit you've got it and be aware of the consequences of listening to the bloody thing. You need to find a way to squash it and then have an objective look, keep an open mind to the fundamentals of all parts of Australia. Yeah, that's right. 
Now, mate, the retail sector tends to have similar growth drivers and act a little bit like residential property. And I can't have the number one residential analyst on without asking where the next Hobart is. So can you give us a few insights? Well, look, whether it's residential or commercial, the thing that has the biggest influence on property asset values is economic conditions at a local level. Mm-hmm. So that's not listening to the, the economists who tend to talk, you know, Australia this and the market that. Um, you can't buy a commercial property index or a residential property index. You buy an individual property asset in a town or city somewhere. So so the key to picking the, the home out of the next five years is the same way that Propertyology picked it back in 2013-14. And that's having an objective look at all the, you know, identify what are the key industries to each town and city in Australia. What does the local economy rely on most for employment? And what's the outlook for, for those key industries? By doing that, you, you will quickly eliminate some locations. And then look, what are the industries that have the healthiest outlook? Narrow your search then to the parts of Australia that then rely on those individual economies. We avoid locations that have recently had a strong growth period within the last sort of three to five years. So that's another easy way of eliminating locations. You progressively start to get a much smaller list of locations to choose from. Then you need to start looking at levels of supply, both current and also what's in the pipeline. So you need to take an interest in what the developers in those locations are doing, because uh, you might have a tight market now, but there could be a whole heap of you know new supply under construction at the moment that could hurt you in a couple of years' time. Now, that's not easy. Investing's not easy. If it was that easy, the world would be full of billionaires, wouldn't it? And it's not. So what I've said there might sound easy. It's not, but that's the process to follow. So if you had to tip one suburb or city, where would it be? From the capital cities, you can throw a blanket over Adelaide, Brisbane and Perth, which performs best over the next five years will be determined by local economic conditions of each of those outside of of that remembering that there are 185 towns and cities in australia it's not just their capitals i think queensland subject to what happens in the october state election uh queensland will, uh, will have some good performers whether it's cairns townsville in the north or whether it's you know Mackay, rockhampton in central queensland have got a good outlook I do think mining is, we could see out of this coronavirus, you know, China go through another boom or something like that. And when that happens, Queensland and uh, Western Australia's economies tend to do well. So there's a tip there for people. Look, look at the towns and cities in those two states and start to get, you know, figure out what's happening with the underlying fundamentals there. Regional Victoria has been very strong and, uh, and, and our view still has a healthy outlook. So that's places like... Uh, say Shepparton, uh, Warrnambool, Bendigo. So there's you know quite a few locations we're giving you there. Fantastic, mate. Cheers for that. And where can the listeners go to find out more about your services? So propertyology.com.au is a couple of things that people can do there. One, there is a free research newsletter they can subscribe to. So uh, roughly three or four times a month, we will send out a, a research report. Uh, on locations all around Australia or while on the website look for the contact us tab and just drop us a quick line and we'll set some time to have a have a bit of a chat fantastic mate today's guest has been Simon Presley cheers buddy thank you Andrew once again that brings us to the end of the show I'd like to thank all my guests for giving up their time and sharing their wealth of knowledge with all of us 
I'd also like to thank Kevin McLeod for the music. And remember, in the words of Grant Cardone, be obsessed or be average. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has been a Developer Life production.